I'm excited to close out this series, Church by Design, and we've been talking about the church culture putting language to who we want to be as Red Rocks Austin. From the beginning, as a church plan, looking at the future, who we want to be. And we've been saying that we want to be a church where the doors are wide, the roots run deep, and the reach is far. And Doug, he talked about why we do all of this, right? May we never lose sight of why we're designing and building this church together. And it's because of who God is and his love for us and what he's done for us and what that means, that that's why we do what we do. And I'm going to bring the last piece of our design today. But before I do that, I wanted to give you another update. Um, I started this series out talking about being a church with a far reach. And I told a story of going back to preach at a church I used to work at in Denver and their pastors, John and Chris Leach, being just amazing, generous people who took their whole offering that weekend and gave it to Red Rocks Austin as a gift and said, we're putting seed money into your church, $80,000 that they gave us for our church, which is crazy, crazy. And so these last few weeks, we've talked about it, our team, and we've said, hey, well, well, that money, we want it to help us. We want to utilize it and steward it well to widen our doors and deepen our roots and reach far in the world. And so there's the less exciting parts of that in a budget or setting some money aside to put roots down in Austin someday so we can have a permanent location, um, you know, things like that. But the really exciting thing to report to you is the far reach. That's what everybody loves. Well, we looked at that money and we said, you know, we have a ton of things we could spend money on right now as a church plant, but we want to set a precedent from the beginning that we will be generous. And so if a tithe is 10%, let's do more than that. So of that 80000 we decided as a team to just immediately give away 20000 of it. And you might say that's crazy or irresponsible as a church plant. Welcome to Red Rocks Church. That's who we are. That's what we'll be known for. And so we took that 20000 and we said we want to give it out into the world. We have local stuff we want to do in Austin this summer, and you'll hear about that too. But we want to just invest in the kingdom globally. So we split up 20000 for four different ministries, and we have checks that have gone out to them. The first one is a ministry in India that we've talked about a little bit that trains up pastors, sends them on a Red Rocks bike that uh, we get to be a part of that whole process with a bike, Bible, bongo. They go out to a village somewhere and start preaching the gospel in places that people have literally never heard of Jesus before. And we want to invest in that. There's a pastor in India that Ryan talked about last week. He rescues kids out of the red light district life in India and gives them a chance to have a home and be a kid and know Jesus and go to school. So we sent a check to them and said, keep doing what you're doing. Feed those children. Keep getting more. Uh, we have an exciting partnership that's forming uh, Red Rocks Church as a whole in South America. And I'm going to keep it vague because things aren't totally official yet with this. But it's going to involve caring for kids and families and planning churches in South America. And we said, hey, we as Red Rocks Austin, we want to invest in that. We're going to put some money in the pot right from the beginning and what's going to happen there. And the last one is on the island of Hispaniola, which is Haiti and the Dominican Republic. We have a really good friend who has a ministry that does all kinds of stuff in both countries, raising up Haitians um, to be leaders, to be pastors, to be missionaries, and unifying two peoples that generally have hated each other historically, doing incredible stuff that are seeking to put their roots down and purchase this property that's a great investment for them, a great base for their ministry. And they're raising a ton of money right now. And we said, hey, here's some money. We're investing in what you guys are doing. And this is from Red Rocks Austin. So I'm telling you all that because you're a part of this. You're a part of our church getting to say, hey, we're going to look way farther than our doors, our four walls, and we're going we're to reach far in this world. And we already get to do that. We're already doing that. And we set that tone now because we believe in years to come, there's going to be bigger checks and more ministries and more opportunities and more pastors and more people that are going to come to know Jesus 
because our church said, hey, we're going to be generous first, and we're going to give it all away, and we're going to reach far into this world. So thank you guys for making that possible, and I wanted to report that to you because it's your story. You're a part of this. So now, with the announcements out of the way, let's close out this series. I was thinking about the, the DNA we've laid and the dimensions we've talked about of being wide, deep, reaching far, and of course, we do it all for God and because God is so good to us. And I would say this, if Doug, as Doug said, the, the, who, or the why is a who. The why of what we do is who, it's God. If the why is a who, then the purpose of why we're doing it is people. And so that may sound very elementary to you, like, okay, we should love people. And I get that from the fact that Jesus said all the commandments, everything that you're supposed to do as one of God's people can be summed up in two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two things that Jesus said, this is your measurement of if, if you're living out the life that I have for you. And so we've talked about loving God and doing this for God, and I want to talk about then what that means about how we treat people, approach people, how we as Christians, as a church family, what, it mean, what people mean to us, and how we follow after Jesus in his example. You may have been coming here the past few months, past few weeks, and kind of get the vibe that we preach the gospel in the midst of it. Whatever the theme is, whatever the message is, we preach the gospel. That Jesus Christ loves you, that he died for you, and that he rose to give you new life, and that he has eternity for you. We always come back to the love of Jesus. And you say, yeah, man, we get it. God loves me, and he likes me. He has plans for my future. He's this father looking out for his prodigal son, and he welcomes me home even when I've made a mess because it's not about what I've done to screw things up. It's about what he's done to make things right, and he welcomes me home, and he throws a party, and you guys keep talking about that. And we keep talking about that because we want it to get so deep into who we are as people that it's just our DNA. It's just who we are. And it says it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And the key to that is got to love yourself well so you can love your neighbor well. If you don't love yourself very well, then you're not going to love your neighbor very well. And the whole point is that if you get the gospel, if you get the fact that Jesus loves you, that he died for you, that he rose for you, that he has life for you, it becomes a part of who you are and you find yourself whole and you find yourself with joy and with peace and with love and all that he has for you, your eternity is set. And then you kind of look around and you're like, okay, so Jesus took care of it, and I know him, and I love him, and he saved me, and I have a relationship with him. I guess I'm still on the other side of eternity then for the sake of the people around me. I guess the whole point is that you don't just get the gospel to have it. You get the gospel to give it away. And that's who we want to be as a church, people who give the gospel away and never grow numb to the power of Jesus and to the gospel message in this father who welcomes home his prodigal son, that we never grow numb to that, that we're not people that are overtaught because we can be, because we can hear messages every hour, sermons from every church in the world, but underapplied. We don't want to be overtaught and underapplied. We want to be people who go out every single day and say, man, we celebrate Easter every day. My grandma used to always say that. We celebrate Easter every day because she was somebody who understood the input of the gospel. And when it puts roots in who you are, then naturally there's an output. And you're celebrating Easter every single day. That's who we want to be. And you may hear us say, hey, bring people to Easter and think that's because we, we want an Instagram photo where the room is packed or for the sake of a number. And I'll tell you this in complete integrity and honesty that I do not care about the number of people in our church for the sake of a number or a picture or a stat. I care about this place being packed 
because it means person after person after person after person gets to experience how God feels about them. Because in this place, they will. Because we will always come back to this foundation of Jesus and his love for us and what it means for us then in the lives of the people around us. It can kind of be summed up in this quote that I saw the other day. To show others deep radical kindness, there's someone you have to give it to first, yourself. That explains what I'm talking about. It could be, you could put love in there, you could put the good news that, that to go give that to somebody else, to show it to somebody else, you've got to have it first. To love your neighbor well, you've got to love yourself well, and that starts with the gospel. So that's the, that's the foundation we're going to stand on today, and now we're going to look outward and talk about people. That quote, it really struck me uh, because I read it. It was on a plaque on a picnic table outside the hospital while we were there. We were eating lunch, and that quote was just right there, and I was thinking about you guys. I was thinking about this message, and when you're in a hospital, you kind of have this perspective that's a little bit like zoomed out from normal life, right? Like the busy day-to-day and your little world that you live in, it's not like that in a hospital. So we put everything else on pause and we're in this place where some people like us are experiencing something so great and wonderful, new life. In the same building, people are experiencing pain and sorrow and loss and tragedy. Hospital is kind of a, a weird place in that way. And I'd find myself sitting down at the place where we ate um, the Bistro in St. David's North, Austin's Hidden Gem, great restaurant. We ate there 35 times, I think. Chocolate chip cookies, I highly recommend. So head up there sometime. Yeah, it sounds weird to go eat at a hospital, but I will be back there on my birthday <laughs> to eat there, I'm telling you. So anyway, I'd be sitting there eating, and I'm looking from table to table thinking, like, I wonder what their story is right now. I wonder what they're going through right now. And we got another dose of it because our son was in the NICU, and if you've never been in a NICU, it's a pretty intense place. Where Zeke's room was in the NICU was as far away from the entrance as pretty much possible. So when we went to see him, which was all the time, we'd walk past bed after bed after bed after bed on our way to see him. And all those beds were children, babies, some of them fighting for their lives. Kids are in NICU because they have issues with their health. They need surgeries. They were born premature for whatever reason. There's all these little lives that we'd walk past. And not because I'm a pastor or a good person, because you know I'm not. I've, I just found myself because I'm a person, and I think you would have done the same, walking through there just being like, God, be in this place. Be with these families. Be with these kids. Bring life in this place. Bring healing and health. And thinking about these, these little people and, and what they represent as a life, a person, a human being that's going to go out into this world, and, and God could use that person. What could happen through that life? It's an unnerving place in a NICU because there's beeping going on all the time. And what that comes from is every baby is hooked up to a machine that monitors their heart rate, their respiratory rate, their oxygen levels. So Zeke had little leads on his chest and something wrapped around his foot all the time. And there was a screen in his room, and it would tell us all of those numbers, and they would constantly be changing. What happens in a NICU is if the numbers get a little lower, a little higher, something goes you know, a little off, or sometimes even just when they move around, the, the levels drop or go up, those things start beeping to tell you. They alert you. It's a good thing, but it's scary. And when we got in there, the nurse told us, hey, kind of get used to it. It's going to happen. It happens a lot. And sometimes it's just a couple seconds. Sometimes nothing's wrong. They're just moving around. And, you know, he's a baby, so he's figuring stuff out. But just get used to it. Don't panic when that starts beeping, which is very easy 
to say and really hard to do when it's your son. So we were uh, a week into his life, and a few times, all of a sudden, those levels just plummeted. And it, was like, it wasn't like a casual, check this out, beep. It was like something is wrong here. And we panicked. It freaked us out. Everything plummeted. We're like, what's going on? And what was happening was really just that because he's a baby, he would just kind of forget to breathe for a second, or he'd choke a little bit. But all the levels would drop, and, and we were terrified. And it became to the point that it wasn't even, like, we saw that he was okay when this would happen. But it was like the shock of the alarm scared me so bad. I was like, I don't want this to happen anymore. So two weeks ago, while you were all here at church on a Sunday, I was sitting in his NICU room holding him on my chest. And I just, for what felt like hours and hours, just stared at that screen. And all I could think was, please don't go down. Please don't drop. Please don't go down. Just staring and staring at this screen. And after a while, it happened. His numbers dropped and it started alerting us. And I was staring at the screen and I felt like I kind of shuffled him around. Like I was kind of trying to burp him. But really all I was doing was just looking at that screen saying, go back up. Go back up. I'm looking at this problem. I'm looking at this thing. I'm so freaked out. My wife, she rushes over and she's right in his face. And she says, hey, remember what they told us. Look at the person. Look at him, not the problem. Look at the person, not the problem. The nurses tell you, look at the kid. If he's breathing, he's okay. If he's not blue in the face, he's okay. See if it normalizes. But for me, for those hours, I hated to think it, I hate to say it, but my son just became this problem that I was just scared that something was going to go wrong, and I completely lost sight of the fact that he's this person right here that there's a life, this gift that God's given us, it's right here, this human being, all it was was a potential problem. And that idea to look at the person, not the problem, has stuck with me. And it's the theme of this message because I think a lot of times it's how we as human beings and as believers a lot of the time how we end up approaching people. And here's what I mean by that. We naturally... We meet somebody, we see somebody around, we make quick judgments and assessments about them. I don't like that person, annoying habit, they're a lot. Man, if I was going to become friends with them, that would that'd be too much work. Or if I was going to get involved in their life, I'd have to get my hands dirty. That's a mess. I'm not dealing with that. That person's annoying. They're way different than me. They think differently. Their ideas are way different than mine. A lot of times it's somebody that maybe has a a different way of life or a different view of life or whatever, a different politic, whatever, and we look at them and what we don't understand or we don't know, we just fear, and so we're like, eh, stay away. We just make these judgments, and human beings quickly are no longer people, they're problems. Or sometimes as believers, as Christians, we turn people into projects. We look at our friends and we're like, oh, yeah, that guy, super not saved, what a mess, he doesn't walk into churches, I can tell you that. Like, we label people like that. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't think he'd be comfortable being around my Christian friends, and they certainly wouldn't be comfortable around him. Or, yeah, the way that she lives, no way. Too much work. Or, or I got I to gotta fix them. I got to clean them up. This is my project now. I got I to gotta get them square so then they could come to my church. Then they could be in my life group. Then I'd invite them to something. If I get them cleaned up, they're my project now. And here's the problem with that. People can tell when we look at them like 
problems or projects. It's really easy to detect when somebody acts differently around you or they suddenly are like this parent you never asked for trying to get you cleaned up and fixed up and change how you live your life and you're like, I didn't ask you to do this. People don't want to be treated as a problem or a project. They want to be treated as a person. And it's so hard for us sometimes as human beings. Naturally, I'm as guilty at this as any of you. It's so hard sometimes to remember that this is a person. The, the biggest problem with not looking at the person but looking at a problem is that's not how we as disciples of Jesus are called to live. Jesus said that we would be known by one thing above all else. Our opinions, no. Ideas, politics, no. Our platforms, our influences, no. Our bank accounts, jobs, vocation, no. Our popularity, no. Our righteousness, no. Our past or our performance, no. The miracles that happen through our lives, no. The words that we share, no. The wisdom we have, no. The works that we do, the good things that we do, no. He said we would be known by our love above everything else. And all those things I just mentioned are good things if they're placed on a foundation of love first. But so often as Christians, we go at people and people look at us and all they see is opinions, what they don't like, what they stand against. They just want me to fit this mold that they have. And we're not known a lot of the time for our love. But this church is a place where we will be known by our love first and foremost. And that can be really challenging, right? Because people are hard. People are difficult. I think if we look to Jesus, of course, he is the master of seeing the person, not a problem, not a project, seeing a person. And so we can learn from him. So I'm going to jump through a couple of stories real quick. The first one we're going to read through, and then I'll tell you where the other stories are so you can go dig into them this week because you could do sermons and series on every single story. But let's start here in John chapter 1, um, verses 40 through 51 real quick. The context, the setup here is that Jesus' ministry has started rolling. And he's been baptized by John the Baptist. John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. And so people, rumors are swirling around this guy. There's been for centuries and generations, people were told a Messiah will come. A king will come and he will save his people. He will establish his kingdom. It's been told through prophets for, for so long. And all of a sudden, there's rumors swirling. People are using the M word. The Messiah may be in our midst. And so... That Messiah starts assembling his squad, starts getting his guys together. It says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said when John the Baptist said Jesus was the Lamb of God, and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon Peter and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus, okay, this isn't the whole point of this, but we can learn from Andrew. His immediate response after meeting Jesus is to say, oh, I got to get my brother. He's got to meet you too. He encounters Jesus and he says, he immediately has somebody pop into his mind, oh, he's got to know this too. We should be like that. It's like the, it's Will Ferrell in Wedding Crashers. You're coming with when he invites Owen Wilson to crash a funeral with him. Very different context than this story. But there is a difference, I think, that and sometimes an invitation is, you know, what's comfortable and it's the right thing to do. We don't want to step on someone's toes and we just say, hey, 
you should come to this. If you're interested, here's the details. There's a difference between just inviting like that and saying, hey, you, you're coming. You're coming with. You're with me now. I'm going to sit by you. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to introduce you to my people. You're coming with. That's what Andrew does, and that's who we are going to be as Red Rocks Church. So Jesus looks at Peter, and he said, you are the son of, or Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. When it was translated, it's Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one. Moses, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. It's Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael's response is, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Come and see, said Philip. So Philip has the same stance as Andrew. He says, hey, I met Jesus, and I got to go get my friend because he's got to come too. And Nathaniel naturally is, has some doubt. He's like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, you met the Messiah. Definitely. That's been foretold for, I don't know, centuries. I'm sure you met him. Here's where the story gets just odd to me, and sometimes I, when I've read this, I've wondered why it's in the Bible. But here we go. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, here's how that story sounds to me. I walk my dog in a park by my house. Let's say one day, Ryan comes to me and he says, you got to come meet this guy. There's something going on here, something crazy, something special going on here. So I say, yeah, sure. I go meet this guy. I'm walking up. He's like, hey, here's a good dude. I'm like, how do you know me? He's like, oh, I saw you walking your dog at the park. And I'm like, oh, well, you must be the son of God. <laughs> what? <laughs> really odd, right? So something has to be going on beneath the surface here, though, because Nathaniel was just doubting the whole thing. He just told Philip, like, yeah, whatever, yeah, right. And then he has one little encounter, and he's like, okay, I'll go with you. You're the Messiah. And we kind of get the spark notes, I imagine, in this story. Like, we probably don't get the full dialogue and everything that was said. But what I know we don't get in this story is the feeling in the encounter. See, Nathaniel's an ordinary guy, fisherman. And he now finds himself staring at grace in the face. Jesus, perfect love, God in the flesh, is standing there talking to him. And I have a feeling that anybody who encountered Jesus probably felt something. Like there's something different about this person. Jesus is looking him in the eye, and I think what's happening here is not that Jesus is saying, oh yeah, Nathaniel, the guy from under the tree. He's saying, Nathaniel, I see you. I know you. And Nathaniel has this feeling inside of him, like, me? I'm kind of just an average Joe. Like, nobody stops me to talk to me. Nobody invites me to stuff. You see me? Jesus looks at him. You're not just a fisherman. You're not some problem, the stuff you've done. I know. I know you. I see you. Come with me. So simple. But this is what Jesus does. He sees the person 
And Nathaniel is so moved by the fact that Jesus looked at him and saw him that he goes with him. This is what Jesus does story after story after story. The woman at the well, John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman. She's fetching water at a time of day when the outcasts would be there. She's lived a rough life, we find out. So she's going at a time of day when she doesn't have to deal with people because people look down on her, they treat her poorly. And here comes this Jewish rabbi. Okay, Jews hated Samaritans. Jewish men did not talk to women in public because women were second-class citizens in that culture. And Jesus comes up and starts talking to her, and she's like, why are you talking to me? Like, he asked her to get some water out of the well for her. She's like, what are you doing? Me? Why are you talking to me? And they start having this conversation where Jesus looks at her and says, I see you. Nobody else around here does, but I do. And I have living water for you. He offers her living water. And they have this conversation where she comes to realize he does know her. He says, go tell your husband about this. She says, well, the man I want is not my husband. He says, no, I know. You've gone from husband to husband to husband. And we all hear that and we're like, got her, sinner. Good job, Jesus. Well, Jesus, yeah, why would you think that? Jesus is saying, I know what you've been through. I know the ups and the downs, the good and the bad. What did I just offer to you? Living water. That's what I have for you. That's how I see you. He sees the person. And then she goes and becomes an evangelist. She's like, you guys got to meet this guy. He knows me in a way that I don't know how, but he offered me this living water, and I think we all are going to want it. How about the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8? The Pharisees all have rocks in their hands, and they test Jesus because he's a holy man, and they want to see if he's going to obey the law. And they say, hey, this woman has been caught in adultery, so we should stone her according to the law, right? So let's do that. Jesus says, yeah, sure. Whichever one of you guys is without sin, cast the first stone. Go ahead. I'll wait. And they drop their rocks, and they walk away because they realize what Jesus just did and what he just said. And Jesus is the one person in that circle that rightfully could throw a stone because he is without sin. And what does he do? He looks at the woman and he says, I see you. They didn't condemn you, did they? And neither do I because I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to save you. I stand for you. Jesus just defended her. That's what he does. And this woman, she had just become an object of sin. You know how much shame was probably on her being brought out in public in front of people because she committed adultery? Can you imagine that? And here comes this Jewish rabbi who comes up to her and says, no, I see you. I'm here to save you. There's better for you. Leave that life behind. I've got better for you. We've talked about tax collectors. People hated tax collectors, right? Because they were Jewish people who taxed their fellow Jews for the Roman Empire that was oppressing the Jewish people. They were traitors. Everyone hated them. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus comes up to him. and He's like, hey, follow me. Matthew had to have been sitting there like, I'm sorry. No one's ever come up and talked to me and had a conversation with me because they all hate me and want me dead. Follow you? Next thing you know, Jesus is at Matthew's house hanging out with Matthew and his sinner buddies because that's what Jesus does. The people that are sinners, that are outcasts, that everyone else throws away, those are our people because those are his people. Jesus is at Matthew's house. Zacchaeus, our famous wee little man. Also a tax collector, very hated. Jesus is in a crowd of people. Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree to try to see him because he's intrigued by the M word that this Messiah, something special might be going on here. My commentary is I think that 
Zacchaeus may also have gotten in the tree because he didn't like to be in crowds because everyone hated him, and he was at the perfect level for them to accidentally just elbow him right in the face. So he's up in a tree, and Jesus, in the midst of a crowd, goes, Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus can't do this because he's the only person up in the tree. I'm coming to your house today. Zacchaeus has to be thinking, my house? This holy guy? Oh, no, 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 everyone hates me. I'm pretty much money and hatred is the theme of my life. And next thing we know, Jesus is at his house, hanging out with him and his buddies, and Jesus says, salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You're my people. I see you, Zacchaeus. You're my people. You're coming with. That's what Jesus does. And so you may hear those stories and say, okay, I get what you're saying. Jesus saw the person for sure. But didn't he also point to problems in their life? Yeah, absolutely he did. He told that woman to leave the life of adultery behind. Right? He pointed out to this woman, I know you, you've had a rough life here. There's, there's something better for you. Or the tax collectors, they, they came out of an old life into a new life. So wasn't Jesus also addressing a problem? Yes, he was. But so often as Christians, we go there and we just pull that part out and say, see, we need to go tell all our friends and family all of their sin and how screwed up they are. We need to get them to clean up their acts so one day maybe they could know Jesus. But that's not what Jesus does. Why do we make people feel like they can't walk in the doors of a church until they clean themselves up if Jesus did not do that? Jesus goes up straight to the person and says, hey, before you clean up your act, here's a living water for you. Before you clean up your act, I stand and defend you. Before you guys clean up your act, I'll just come hang out with you at your house. Right? There's an order to the things that Jesus does. And he goes first to the person and says, I see you. And I have life for you. And yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into some stuff with you because Jesus loves you enough that he will not let you stay in death. He will not let you. If you start walking with him, he will say, this has to be left behind because it's killing you. I have better for you. Jesus will do that because he's your savior. Jesus can do that because Jesus is Jesus. And a lot of times we kind of misplace who's who and we say, oh, okay, I need to save and fix this person. That's my job and I'm going to tell them how to clean up their act and tell them what to do. That's Jesus. He does the transforming. He does the saving. Our posture should be this. I see you. You're coming with. And this is Jesus. I see you. You're coming with. And this is Jesus. That we say, hey, I'm with you. You're a human being and I see you. And I know this piece of news, it's the greatest piece of news that the universe shall ever know. So you're coming with. And I've got a guy I want to introduce you to. Because he loves you and he sees you and he has life eternal for you. That should be our posture. When people walk in, they shouldn't feel like you're a problem, you're a project, you're annoying right? You're a means to an end. You're competition. Oh, you, you're too far gone. Probably not with my Christian group. I don't know what you might say or do. People shouldn't feel like that ever around Christians. We should be known by our love. We should say, I see you. You're coming with, and this is Jesus. I saw this video that I'm going to show you guys. Uh, it kind of painted this idea to me in a unique way. It's a video tribute to Dwayne Wade, who just retired from the Miami Heat in the NBA. And uh, in the midst of crowds, in the midst of his life, the craziness of it I can't imagine, this paints a picture of a guy who was able to see people in the midst of all of it and to affect their lives with love. So watch this. 
idea who's coming. Like, literally, no idea. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Dwayne. Hello. Hello. How you doing, brother? Pretty good, ain't you so? It's been about 12 years since I last seen you. I come from an area where not too many people make it. It was always my dream that I'd get the chance to go to college, but we just didn't have the money. You mean so much to us, and my brother Joaquin loved you from the beginning. He passed away in Parkland on February 14th. He was one of the 17 victims. 10 days before Christmas, our house burned down and we lost everything. It was one of the lowest points in my life. Hey, Dwight. How you doing, Miles? You were the joy of my life. But I was dropping the ball. That day that I just couldn't do it no more was the day that I was going to have to turn myself in. And I seen the tears just fall from your eyes. Your mama went down a road, Dwayne, that I didn't ever think I'd come back from. But on that road, I noticed you kept showing up. And you'll come and see about me. And Dwayne, because you believe in me, when I got out of prison, I was a different woman. We received a phone call. Would you mind if Dwayne Wade take you and the family <laughs> on a shopping spree? It just meant the world to me that you were there for us at this time. Thank you. you became our hero. A lot of the words that you said hit a spark and kind of changed where I was going. Without you and your full tuition scholarship, none of this would have been possible. You're not way the basketball player, the legend. You're the human being that took the time and on his own, wrote my brother's name on his shoe, and you cared. When you bought your mama that church, you don't even understand the lives that you changed. So I don't have a jersey but I brought you this. I don't have a jersey to trade with you, but I definitely have this. The blazer that I wore to my first job interview. My cap and gown from graduation. This is important because Joaquin wore this in his last championship. My family wanted you to have it. Please don't forget my brother, Joaquin. Having you as a role model has made all the difference. One of the special robes that you gave me purple symbolized royalty and you are royal in everybody's life that you've been touched you completely changed the course of my life i know my brother is with you always it wouldn't have been possible to be here if it wasn't you i am more proud of the man you have become than the basketball player you are bigger than basketball how good is that big Dwayne wade fan I think that that paints so well a picture of somebody who has so much attention on him, so many people that want his attention, so many things that he's doing, busy life, craziness, and in the midst of it, 
he was able to say, hey, I see you in your tragedy. I see you in your need. His mom is the most powerful part because often it's the people that are closest to us that hurt us that are then the hardest to see as people again. And yet Dwayne Wade looked at his mom. He could have so easily said, I don't owe you anything. You didn't do your job as a mom. You went to prison. But no, he said, no, mom, I see you. You're a person. And it's been a tough road, but I'm with you. I love you. I think about Jesus and him standing in the middle of a basketball court and people walking out to him. And nobody paid attention to me. I was just an average Joe. And then one day you saw me. You didn't just see me under a tree. You saw me and invited me to come with you. And when I was out there getting water, nobody ever talked to me. Nobody even really treated me like a person, but you did. Changed my life that day. When I was about to be killed for my sin, you stood and you defended me and you saved me. Everyone hated us, man. We were tax collectors. And honestly, we kind of hated ourselves. But you, you came to us and said, I see you. I love you. Come with me. I think about my life, man, walking out on a court and telling Jesus, I'd made a mess of everything. I was such a bad example of a Christian. I did all the things I wasn't supposed to do, made a mess of my life, and pretty much figured you wanted nothing to do with me, and then there you were. And you just said, come on, you're coming with me, and as my goodness and my love gets roots down in you, I'm gonna use your story of brokenness to share this good news with other people and their stories of brokenness. And we're a part of those stories. All those jerseys, they're for Jesus and his heaven-sized trophy case. He's the one who saves, he's the one who transforms, but we're a part of those stories. Think about us as a church one day, standing together in the middle of a basketball court and people walking up and saying, man, nobody in Austin paid attention to me. I was an outcast. I was a mess. Even Christian people didn't want me around. And we say, no, no, you're our person. Now, I walked in your doors and I felt at home. I was seen. You looked at me and I was a person to you, not a problem, not a project. I was a person to you and it changed everything for me. I want to be that church that's a part of those stories. And here's the secret. Jesus was able to walk up to people and see them for everything, everything in their life, everything that they were with, with love because he knew the full story. I know this is like a cliche dad analogy to use, but this picture, like Jesus looks at us in our mess the road we've gone down, the mistakes we've made, or the things that have happened in our life, Jesus says, yeah, but I have this picture of you. You're my kid. This pure, beautiful life that I created to be in relationship with me. I don't look at you and see all this mess, all this sin. I see you as my kid. That's the picture he has, and he knows the full story. And I think that if we, as individuals, as human beings, if we sat across a table from our worst enemy, somebody we hate, somebody who's done something terrible in this world, and we looked them in the eye and they told us their whole story, like the stuff that happened in the dark that nobody knows, the, the mental torture that they've gone through, the abuse, the neglect, the pain, the suffering, the hardship of their life, not justifying what they've done, but if we got the full scope of their story, I think we would sit there looking them in the eye and just say, 
I feel hatred flowing out of my body and love and compassion flowing in for you. I don't find it within myself to have hatred for anybody when I look through the lens of Jesus. And when we know the story, we can see them like that. I've had so many times where I'm like, oh, that person or this person, oh, this person's going to be a drag. They're going to be a lot of work. And then I hear their story and I'm like, why did I think that about somebody? Now I know their story. Now I know that they've gone through a bunch of stuff and they're broken just like me. I want to have more love and more compassion and not judge, not hold people at arm's length. I want us to be a church that says, I see you, you're coming with, and this is Jesus. Because if we are that church, we as God's people, if that's what we're known, if that's what we do, then we really are disciples because that would mean then that we are known first by our love. So as we worship, I challenge you with two things. You got to love yourself well to love your neighbor well. So right now as we're worshiping, go sit and think about you walking out onto a basketball court and the conversation you'd have with Jesus. What would you say to him? As he looks you in the eye, the author and perfecter of your faith who made you, who died for you, who rose again to give you new life, who sees you, what would you say to him? What's your story? How has he seen you? and said, you're coming with me. And then the other thing, who might walk out onto a basketball court someday to talk to you? The, the jersey's for Jesus, but the story is something you're a part of. Who do you need in your life right now to see as a person again? Maybe it's somebody that's done something terrible to you. Maybe it's just a coworker that's kind of annoying and they've just become this problem. But then you look at them with the eyes like Jesus as you let the gospel get deep into you and you say, oh, no, no, no. You're my person. You're coming with. Would we be known as people who do that so we'd be known as a church that's known by our love? Let's worship.